Well, today we once again have the opportunity to look at the cross of Christ in John chapter 19. But before we go back to that chapter in our study of John chapter 19 this morning, I want to discuss first two terms that many theologians use to summarize all that Christ did to make our salvation possible. This will be a bit of a theological study here at the beginning. All that Jesus did to make our salvation possible and all that he did has to do with his obedience, his obedience. For Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away sin, he had to be perfect in his obedience. So let's think about obedience this morning. Let me make a shocking statement to you. Obedience, perfect obedience, is necessary in order to be saved. Stay with me, I'll explain it. We're looking at Jesus' obedience, and there are two categories of his obedience, which has led to the two terms that I mentioned, two terms that theologians like to use. One term is this, the idea of the active obedience of Christ, and the other idea is that of the passive obedience of Christ. However, those two labels can be confusing, so we do need to explain them this morning. Let's start with the recognition that talking about obedience at all means we're talking about the law of God. Obedience is something that is in relationship to God's law. And you can summarize God's law by saying that there are two kinds of of perspectives in it. There are the demands that are given to us, commands, the positive demands, and there are the negative consequences that are laid out. On one hand, the law demands that its commands, its precepts be obeyed perfectly. God takes those positive demands in His law very seriously. Like I said, to have a standing before God, we must perfectly obey His law, which is a problem because we are, of course, unable to do that. And therefore, the law also demands consequences, penalties for all the infractions and all the shortcomings in obedience, which that's a problem for us as well because we are guilty of many shortcomings since we are unable to perfectly obey God's law. In any case, it is this twofold aspect of the law of God that is referred to when we speak of the active and the passive obedience of Christ. Let's take the first one, the active obedience. The active obedience of Christ refers to the lifestyle that he lived when he was here on earth. When he was here, he did perfectly obey all the positive demands, all the commands of God's law, something expressed in various ways in the New Testament. For example, back in John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus himself said this, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, meaning the Father who sent him on the mission here. 
In Romans chapter 5, it talks about the fact that Adam disobeyed, and in his disobedience, the entire human race was plunged into sin. But then it says this, Romans 5, 19, through the obedience of the one, meaning Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So it is this obedience of Christ to the law of God when he lived and ministered here on earth that has frequently been designated with that label, the active obedience of Christ. Jesus perfectly obeyed what the law commands, and he did it with all of his heart. He did it with all of his will. He did it with all his personality, his desire, his determination. And that obedience fulfilled the positive, prescriptive requirements, the commands of the law. And that reality is a great thing for lost sinners like us. Why? Because of what God is willing to do. God is willing to count Jesus' perfect obedience to credit it to us, accredit it as if it's ours. In other words, God will impute Jesus' perfect lifestyle to us and count it as ours and treat us according to it if we have come to Him at some point in our life to express saving faith in Him. The active obedience of Christ. Second, Jesus did not just obey the law in the way he lived. Even his death was in submission to God's law. As noted, the law demands consequences for those who do not perfectly obey it, which means all of us. Each of us here deserves something due to our disobedience. Each of us deserves death Due to our sin and disobedience to God's law, listen to these familiar verses from the book of Romans. Romans 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all disobeyed. Romans 6, 23 says, and the wages of that sin, that disobedience is death. The point is that Jesus obeyed that aspect of the law when he willingly submitted to the mission of the Father that the Father sent him on a mission to die on the cross as the substitute for guilty sinners. This act of obedience fulfilled the law's demand of the consequences, that side. We call those consequences the penal requirements of the law. There's penalty. It is the term passive obedience that has been applied to this aspect of Jesus' obedience, the cross. But, admittedly, that term passive can be misleading. I mean, Jesus was not literally passive in anything he did. In other words, he was not merely this involuntary victim of obedience being thrust upon him or obedience being imposed upon him. Jesus himself said this in John 10 verse 18, No man has taken my life from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. This commandment I receive from my Father. What commandment? To lay it down. So instead, his sufferings, in his sufferings, he was supremely active. There's another well-known verse that connects to this. Philippians 2 verse 8, in that section of Philippians where it says, Jesus lived eternally in the glories of heaven, equal with God because he was God, but he left those glories and the prerogatives of the blessings of the glory 
for being God, and he came to earth, humbled himself, took on a human nature, a human body, and even died a human death. It says this in Philippians 2.8. Listen to the words carefully. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, in other words, was obedient, not just in his lifestyle that he lived and obedient in going to the cross. He actually was obedient in his death. He chose to yield up his spirit at a particular point in time. He chose, in his own words, to lay down his life. So I personally don't prefer that the obedience of his life that we've, through church history, for a long time now, called that the act of obedience. And I, I don't prefer that his final sufferings and death, all that's called the passive obedience. But nevertheless, I do get the intention behind those terms, and the intention is correct. Jesus did perfectly fulfill the law's demands for the, a righteous life. He lived that righteous life on earth, and he took upon himself the guilt of our sin and moral failure in his death. Both sides of the requirements of God's law he met in his life and his death. And it is this complete obedience in every way that is the ground of the forgiveness that we get to receive, the forgiveness of our sin. All that he did in his life and death is the ground for us being able to have a standing before God, to be accepted by God. We can't do it. He did it. I say all this because we're focusing on the Christ, and many Christians for a long time now have tended to focus merely on the death of Jesus as being the reason we can be saved. It took his perfect life as well, his perfect life as a substitute in our place, living the life we could never live, and it took his perfect death in our place. Now, I want to apply all of that theology lesson that I just gave you no extra charge this morning for all that. I want to apply that, all that about Christ's active and passive obedience, or we can put it in this term, his doing and his dying, okay? I want to apply that to one of the most intriguing conversations we find in the Bible, the salvation of that thief on the cross. Now, we've already talked about that last Sunday, I guess it was, or so. I briefly reminded you that that man was one of two thieves, two robbers, who were crucified at the same time as Jesus. So there were three crosses. Jesus' cross was the one in the middle of the other two men, thieves, crucified at the same time. And you know the story we refreshed our memories about last time. At some point, when those three men were all hanging there suffering, one of the thieves came to realize the truth about Jesus. And he cried out to Jesus for mercy. I read Luke 23 to you last time. I'll read it again, just a couple of verses, Luke 23, 42 and 43. He, the thief, said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That dying man, in an instant, on his very deathbed, so to speak, came to experience the forgiveness of his sin. How was that possible? He had had no chance from that moment to the moment he died, no chance now 
to go back and make amends, no chance to live a different life, turn over a new leaf. He couldn't live a life now seeking to obey God instead of sinning against God. That option's not there for him. He's dying on the cross. When it came to doctrine, don't give the man a quiz of any kind. I mean, he hardly knew anything. He couldn't articulate the doctrines of grace if somebody had asked him. He couldn't even articulate the doctrine of justification. And oh no, he was never baptized. Nor would he ever have the opportunity to go through our membership class here at Twin City Bible Church. So how could that man be saved? You know, I've heard people say this along the way. Maybe I've said it in error. Don't use the salvation of the thief on the cross as a prototype. Don't use that as a template. That was different. I'm here to tell you it was not different. This man could be saved for one reason only. In that moment, he came to trust in Jesus and what Jesus had done and was doing. So if you asked him that famous question we ask sometimes in evangelism where we're talking to somebody and trying to figure out where they are spiritually, and it's a good question to ask, you know, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? I mean, he, he was dying. He just told he would go to heaven. But if someone was asking him, why, why, why is God going to let you into heaven? I believe here's what he would say. Because that man in the middle said I could come. And I put my hope in that alone. I entrusted myself, the moments I had left, I entrusted myself to Him alone. That is how someone is still saved today. In other words, the essence of the right response to the gospel message has never changed. Salvation is not based upon the extent of how much doctrine somebody knows, though we believe you should learn as much as possible. Salvation is not based upon the lifestyle changes a person makes, though the Bible does teach us how to live. Instead, it is based upon the extent of the work of God in a person's heart. When God opens someone's heart, that person recognizes there is nothing they can personally do to fix their sin problem, but they recognize that Jesus did it all that Jesus lived the necessary life of obedience and that Jesus died the necessary death for the, to pay for the wages of sin. That person, if God's opened their heart, that person comes to rest in what Jesus did, which means they're resting in his active and passive obedience. That's what happened to the thief on the cross. I mean, he came to rest in that. Why? Because he had no other hope. Everybody has to come to that place. I have no other hope. God's not going to grade me based upon how good I've been or how much better I am than somebody else. He's not going to grade me on how many Bible trivia questions I can answer. He's going to look at this. Did I come to that place of hopelessness about myself and I came to rest in Christ and put my hope in Him? 
Well, I haven't forgotten my sermon. So with that little review of theology, we come once again to John's account of the crucifixion that we began last time in John chapter 19. Today, we're looking at verses 23 to 27. This section is addressing what transpired after Jesus was nailed to the cross. We've already looked at that. He was sentenced to execution unjustly. Tried to carry the cross beam through the streets of Jerusalem. That's what criminals did to the place of execution outside the city walls, just the cross beam part. He couldn't even do that. They had to get somebody else to carry it for him. The vertical part of the cross was already set in the ground waiting for him. That's the, how they did it. They nailed him, his hands, to that cross beam. And then they hoisted him up and fixed that cross beam to the vertical beam. And then nailed his feet to that upright beam. That's already happened. Now, this section looks at what transpired after all of that. In a sense, you could say it addresses not what happened on the cross, but what took place beneath the cross. This section divides into two scenes, with each scene focusing on a particular group of individuals. Here's scene number one and the individuals focused on. Scene number one, the four soldiers. The four soldiers. Verse 23, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Stop there. That was the custom of the day. The clothes of the executed criminal became sort of a bonus for the executioners. It was a a perk of the job, if you will. In this case, the execution squad was made up of four soldiers. Now, when it came to the clothing they were dealing with, you need to know that the average Jew of Jesus' day wore several items. There were the four outer garments, is what they're called here, plural term. That includes a loincloth that would compare to the undergarments of today at some level, a loincloth, footwear, likely sandals, a head covering, some sort of scarf or turban, and a robe. That means that each of the four soldiers could take one article of clothing. That fits John's statement that there would be a part, you see, to every soldier. But those parts, they had different values. They weren't worth all the same. And some soldier might say, well, I don't want the sandals this time. I got a great deal at Walmart this last week. So how would they decide? Well, the soldiers would usually gamble for those pieces. Mark chapter 15, verse 24, gives us a comment on how they did that for all the pieces. Mark 15, 24, and they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. So they would have done that, but there would also commonly be a fifth item of clothing worn. Here it's called a tunic. It's a little difficult to actually understand what the tunic was. Basically, It was something that a Jew in Palestine wore next to the skin, something different from the loincloth, still next to the skin. It was still under the other articles of clothing in some way, but this article was unique. We know that. Verse 23 says, now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. So due to the unique way it was made, they didn't want to tear it into pieces. That would make it worthless. But which one of them is going to get this item? Who's going to go home with two articles of clothing that day? 
Once again, they gambled for it. They cast lots. So from their perspective, what are they doing? What's the motives behind what they're doing? Well, it was practical. And there's some level of selfish motivation going on as well. But there was something else going on from God's perspective. Verse 23 continues. This was to fulfill Scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, we've already seen more than once in John's gospel that many Scriptures were fulfilled in Jesus' life, but especially many were fulfilled at the crucifixion. In fact, that little phrase, to fulfill the Scripture that John uses here, John increasingly uses that statement the closer he gets to the crucifixion. So here it is again. Here it's used in relationship to the soldier's choice to gamble for the Jesus' clothing. However, this does not mean that the soldiers were conscious about this. It does not mean that they were consciously and intentionally seeking to comply with Scripture. They're not saying, hey, this all makes sense practically, and, but isn't it great? Just think about all those verses in the Old Testament will be fulfilling. No, they were acting based upon other motives, but God's sovereignty was, action, was active. God's sovereignty so operated in this event that it occurred just the way God had determined for it to happen in order to fulfill Scripture. So once again, we see God is the one who is overall directing everything so that His will is accomplished. Man is never the ultimate one in control. Now, in this case, the Scripture that it fulfilled is found in Psalm 22, verse 18, the Septuagint version of verse 18. Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Psalm 22 is actually considered a messianic psalm. We call certain psalms messianic psalms because of those particular psalms have statements in them that apply to Jesus. In particular, Psalm 22 points to the crucifixion. Now, David is the psalmist who wrote it. When he penned this psalm, he personally was going through some difficult circumstances. And so to express the severe circumstances he was experiencing at that time, he chose to use some symbolic statements related to uh, some type of execution. But the statements he chose to use ended up fitting a crucifixion scene, which is amazing since David had never witnessed a crucifixion at that point in history. This, therefore, is one of the many evidences of the inspiration of Scripture. It was the Holy Spirit who inspired David as he chose various symbolic things to use to express his own misery. Holy Spirit guided him to choose centuries ahead of the crucifixion to point to that cross of Christ. So in Psalm 22, one of the things David wrote to express his own trial was the idea of executioners taking his clothing away from him and distributing it. That was a way for David to just express in in a symbolic way the abandonment that he was feeling. But this psalm, under the Spirit's inspiration, was meant to find its final fulfillment in Christ. And that's a connection easy to come to, easy to make, because Jesus himself cited Psalm 22 while he was hanging on the cross. It's one of the statements that John chose not to record, but you find it in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. 
About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is verse 1 of Psalm 22. And there are other verses in the psalm. Let me just go over quickly with you, a little quick study of Psalm 22. For example, in verses 6 to 8 of Psalm 22, you find the a reflection of the verbal abuse that Jesus had to endure when he was hanging there. Remember I said they crucified the criminals alongside the road so people would go by and and yell uh, abusive things at them and curse them and insult them. Jesus had to endure that. Listen to Psalm 22, verse 6. I am a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip and they wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver you. In verse 12 and following, Paul uses several comparisons that help him describe uh, the people who were heaping that kind of abuse. Psalm 22 verse 12, he refers to them this way, many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls. Verse 13, they open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. Verse 16, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. Verse 21, save me from the horns of the wild oxen. All symbolic ways of referring to abusive people. Psalm 22 even depicted the physical torment that Jesus had to suffer on the cross. He suffered exhaustion while he was on the cross there. Verse 14 says, I'm poured out like water. The unnatural position of his body on the cross affected his bone structure. Verse 14, again, Psalm 22, and all my bones are out of joint. There was stress on his heart. Verse 14, my heart is like wax. It's melted within me. In verse 15, he speaks of of Jesus' failing strength and his thirst even. Psalm 22, verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. But listen to verse 16, Psalm 22. They pierced my hands and my feet. And 17 of Psalm 22 even mentions the emaciated state, the, the, uh, the gaunt state of his body hanging on there on the cross. It says, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. So here's David using symbolic language just to express his own trial and to lament his own sufferings, but the details of it by God's sovereign design prophesied the anguished experience of Jesus during the three hours that he hung there suffering on the cross. And the point in our passage is that even what the soldiers did in dividing up the clothing was something that pointed back to that messianic prophetic psalm. So John concludes scene number one with a simple statement, verse 25, therefore the soldiers did these things. Scene one, the four soldiers. Here's scene number two, the five supporters. The five supporters. I've noted this with you before that John chose not to dwell in all the physical suffering part of Jesus on the cross. That's true of the other writers as well, but he actually focuses more now on what takes place beneath the cross, like on the soldiers who cast lots for his clothes, but as well, there were some other individuals that John goes on to identify in verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
That adversative conjunction, but, is a very strong term. It's depicting a contrast between the soldiers and now these women. The soldiers were co-heartedly gambling for Jesus' clothes, but in contrast to that, there was this small group of Jesus' loyal followers, his supporters who were lingering there near the cross. It's not a total surprise that some of his disciples, his followers, would come and, and linger somewhere in that area. I mean, it was hard to watch their master suffer. But at times during the long vigil, some would, would venture closer In fact, remember that sign that they hung on the cross? Remember the sign that Pilate dictated, ordered to be written? Make this sign that says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, and put that up on the cross. He did that as a last jab at the Jews. To read that cross, you had to venture closer. And some did that. These four women, mentioned in our verse, even moved in close enough for Jesus to hear what Jesus would say. Let's look at them. First of all, it says his mother. Only John mentions the mother being at the cross. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't, but their omission of Mary really is in keeping with the fact that Mary does not play a major role in the New Testament. I mean, surrounding the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus, yes, but not overall in the New Testament. In contrast to that, Roman Catholic theology is known for propagating many errors related to Mary. Those errors include the teaching that people are to pray to Mary. That's not in the Bible. The teaching that she herself experienced a virgin birth. Not in the Bible. They teach that Mary never died. Not in the Bible. The worst of their errors is their teaching their elevation of Mary to the role of what they call the co-redemptrix. She's the co-redeemer with Jesus of fallen people. It took Jesus' suffering, but it took Mary's suffering heart as well to pay for our sin. Roman Catholic theology. All of these are fabrications, no biblical support, plus the New Testament epistles that are the very doctrinal core of the New Testament. They never elevate Mary. There's a silence there. It's a silence, though, that's deafening. Granted, Mary was a virtuous young woman, a godly woman. For that, she deserves our respect. She deserves honor, but she was also a sinner in need of salvation. She was a sinner who actually worshiped her Savior. You remember her great psalm song that she sang in Luke chapter 1? Here she's told that she's with child, going to bear the Messiah. Here are some of the things she said. Luke 1, verse 46, Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. Verse 48, For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. I'm a slave. Verse 50, And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. She was counting herself in those who benefited from the mercy of God. So with that correction understood, let's do think about her for a moment, the mother of Jesus standing there near the cross, seeing her son suffer that way. Can't help but wonder what she was thinking. You can't help but wonder if she was thinking about something that happened 30 years before this. 
when she and her husband Joseph took Jesus to the temple to present him at the temple. You'll remember that scene, this elderly man named Simeon saw them and came over and blessed the child, but also spoke a word of warning to Mary, the mother in Luke 2.35 said to her, and a sword will pierce even your own soul. She was experiencing that there. I wouldn't be surprised if Mary was pondering those words as she stood there. Another woman was there, his mother's sister, Mary's sister. You compare the statements elsewhere, like in Matthew and Mark, and you conclude that this is a woman who did have a name, her name elsewhere in the other writers, Salome. She's the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Who were they? James and John, the very author of this gospel. That makes John the cousin of Jesus, which can help account for something we're going to read in just a moment, also for this bond that was obviously there between Jesus and John along the way. But this Salome, Aunt Salome, appears in Mark 16. She's one of the women who brought spices to anoint the body of Jesus. She also appears in Matthew 20. They don't give her name there. Matthew 20, verses 20 and 21. She was the mother who came to Jesus asking Jesus to grant special places of honor to her two sons when Jesus came into his kingdom. That was her. It lists a third woman, Mary, the wife of Clopas. This Mary was the mother of James, a different James. In fact, in Scripture, you find it in Mark 15, he's called James the Less. I'd hate to go through life with that, but James the Less. This James, his father, was a man named Alphaeus. Clopas, we have found in church history and historical writings, Clopas is a variant of the name Alphaeus, his father. She was the other Mary in Matthew 27 who kept vigil at Jesus' tomb along with Mary Magdalene. She was one of the women who went to the tomb on on the morning of the resurrection in Matthew 28. She was also one of the women in Luke 24 who tried unsuccessfully to tell the disciples that, look, we've seen Jesus, he's risen. She was one. And finally, a woman we're more familiar with, she appears in all four Gospels, Mary Magdalene. That means she was from a village named Magdala, a village on the west shore of Galilee between Capernaum and Tiberias. John hasn't mentioned her now, until now in his book. She will figure prominently in the resurrection account later in chapter 20. Luke, though, gives us a little piece of information about Mary's, Magdalene's past. Luke 8, verse 2. She, Mary, who was called Magdalene, was the one from whom seven demons had gone out. This woman had been delivered from demons, uh, presumably as a consequence of Jesus' ministry. She has a reputation of having an, an immoral past. There really is no reason for that. There's no reason for to identify Mary Magdalene as that prostitute that's talked about in Luke 7. But we can say she was a devoted supporter of Christ, a follower of Christ. Four women. But it wasn't just the four women was there. There was a fifth follower, a fifth supporter of Jesus at the cross with those four women. The only man in the group, it was John, the author that we're reading. He was the one known, you know, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
Here's what transpired concerning Mary as she stood there and John, Jesus' cousin, the author of this book. Verse 26, when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. He addressed her as woman instead of mother. We've actually seen him do that once before. It was back in John chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana where Jesus performed his first miracle. You'll remember that scene, the account of that wedding. The wine ran out at the wedding. And so as Mary, the mother of Jesus, came looking for her son, she knew some things about him. He could fix that problem. She came to him and told him about needing more wine. Here's how Jesus responded to her in that moment. John 2 verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Meaning, I'm on a mission here about something else. Now, to our ears, that form of address, woman, doesn't sound like a very enduring term. I never would have said that to my mother. Not more than once, anyway. (laughs) The challenge is, in understanding this, we we really have difficulty getting an English equivalent. Dear woman has been suggested. That sounds very too sentimental, really. The term lady, some have suggested that. That doesn't seem to fit. I mean, in our ears today, that's, that's like a, a driver shouting, you know, hey, lady, get out of the way or something. Some have said the term ma'am. Maybe in the South, that could work. It's hard to capture the address. What we know is it was not disrespectful. But it was a way of distancing himself from his mother at certain moments. So here, when Jesus addressed his mother this way, when he was on the cross, there was something theological he was emphasizing. Jesus was confirming Mary's need to relate to him now, not as a mother, but as a member of the fallen race of human beings, the race of Adam and Eve, another woman. That's what her name is. You see, when it came to spiritual things, there was no merit for Mary just because she was his mother. She has to come the same way everybody else does, trusting in him alone. She needed to relate to him just like everyone else. But that didn't mean that Jesus didn't love her and care for her. So he was concerned about her. He went on to tell his mother this in verse 26. Woman, behold your son. That term son is a reference to John who was standing there. Jesus was telling his mother, recognize John now as your son, no longer me. So yes, here was Jesus, her savior, concerned for her soul, but also concerned about Mary's welfare. And he wanted John from this point onward, to bear responsibility for Mary's temporal care. And then he addressed John, verse 27. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. Historians have found these two expressions, Behold your son, behold your mother, as statements that were used and made in legal adoptions of that day. So Jesus was, in essence, doing something official here, officially commissioning John to care for her. 
Evidently, the father, Joseph, was dead by now. People have asked, though, but didn't he have some siblings? Couldn't they take care of her? Yes, Jesus did and did, did indeed have some half-siblings. Mary and Joseph had other children. Jesus would have been the oldest. Another error propagated by Roman Catholicism that, Jesus, that Mary remained a virgin all of her life, that's not true. It's just that Jesus couldn't commit Mary into the care of his half-brothers because they were not yet believers. Back in John chapter 5, it says this, not even his brothers were believing in him. The glory of that is they did become believers in Jesus after his resurrection. In that great scene in Acts chapter 1, when they were in the upper room and the Holy Spirit came, it says in Acts 1 verse 14, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. All those people there, followers, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. What a thought that once the resurrection happened, they came to believe that their older half-brother was indeed the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Well, nevertheless, at the time of the crucifixion, they hadn't believed. They were quite unsympathetic to Jesus at this time. Their home was in Capernaum. It's possible they weren't even there. So the bottom line is that the Lord committed his mother into the care of the one who would have both a spiritual and material interest in Mary's care. So verse 27 concludes, from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Scripture does not record Mary's future life after this. Varying traditions that are in historical writings have said a couple of different things. One tradition says that Mary lived with John in Jerusalem, stayed there with him for 11 years, and then she died. Uh, Another tradition says that when John eventually moved to Ephesus, which he did, she went with him and she actually died there in Ephesus. We don't know. But there is something here for us to think about. Because of this interaction of Jesus with his mother when he was on the cross, we can rightly conclude something from this, that our spiritual family of believers is, in many ways, even more significant than the relations of our own earthly families. It's a hard concept to swallow for many. Nevertheless, on the cross, Christ was creating, he was bringing together a new family by means of his atoning blood and this spiritual family of born-again believers is more important to Jesus than whatever earthly ties are here. Do you know Jesus confirmed that priority elsewhere himself? There was another scene in his life when he was ministering and teaching. His mother and his brothers came to wherever he was to pay him a visit, but they had trouble getting close to him because the crowds were too big. So someone saw them And that someone made their way to Jesus and said, hey, your mother and your brothers are are waiting outside to see you. What do we do? do? Here's how Jesus responded. Luke chapter 8, verse 21. He said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. That was more important. And we can't forget what Jesus taught in Luke 14, verse 26. 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus was not saying we literally need to hate all of our relatives in the way we define that term hate. But the point is, our love for Christ is to be seen as more in comparison. We love him more than husband or wife or children, son, daughter, father, mother, friends. That's a biblical priority. And may we be able to keep that in mind, that loving and serving Christ is the most important thing. That only makes sense, right? He's the one that lived the perfect, obedient life, his active obedience that we could never live. He's the one that died the death on the cross that we deserve. And if we put our trust in him alone, both aspects of that obedience are accredited to us, imputed to us, counted to us, as if we lived that perfect life and as if we did die in payment for our sins. So yes, it makes sense that everything starts with that priority. A person must come to that place in their life, each one individually before the Lord, where they entrust themselves to Him. They come to that place of realizing, I have no hope on my own. God doesn't grade on a curve. And then, out of gratitude for His great gift of salvation and forgiveness, it's spending a life then seeking to love Him and following Him as the Lord of their lives. You see, out of that priority, we then love all others who love Jesus that way. We love our spiritual family, the true church of Jesus Christ. It's a priority. And we'll be even closer to people in our spiritual family than we can be to members of our own earthly family if they don't know Christ. It's always been that way, always will be. Just keep that in mind, the high priority of this church family. After all, we're going to spend eternity in heaven with one another, worshiping the Lord together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder today of all that Jesus has done for us, living the perfect life that we could never live, but yet you require dying the death that we deserve in our place. Thank you that by simple faith, simple trust, trusting in Him alone as our only hope for going to heaven, that in that you count all that to us and treat us as if it's all ours. What a, what a great miracle of grace that is. Father, I pray that you would help us to remember what you've done for us and that that would be a, a motivation in our hearts every day, all day, so that out of gratitude for Jesus, we are learning to love him more. We're learning to serve him more passionately. We're learning more about him in his word. We commit ourselves to that in Christ's name. Amen.